welcome to another episode of the MIT FinTech Conference podcast. This is a limited series of episodes where we will meet and learn from our conference speakers. We are an MIT Sloan student-led event taking place on February 25th in Cambridge. For more information on the conference, stick around until the end of the episode. My name is Gabby and I'm an MIT Sloan student. I'll be your host today. Joining us today is SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce. Commissioner Peirce was appointed by Donald J. Trump to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission in 2018. She has been an active supporter of the cryptocurrency industry and plays an integral part in shaping the regulatory landscape today. Commissioner Peirce, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We're so excited to have you. So just to set some context first, can you give our listeners a brief description of what the SEC does and what your role is as commissioner? Sure. Um, well, it's a delight to be here, Gabby. And and I do have to start with my disclaimer, which is that my views represent my own views, not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. And I think that's important to understand when you think about how the SEC is set up. It's It's a commission structure, which is a little unusual for for a a DC regulator. We have five commissioners, one of whom is the chairman, and we're um, a politically balanced commission. And so when I speak, I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for the whole commission. Only when we vote as a commission do we speak for the whole commission. That's just a a little bit of a a background on the organizational structure. We're about 4,500 or so employees spread across the country. And we regulate the securities markets, the, the specifically the stock markets, broker-dealers, investment advisors, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, um, and then public companies, their filings. We review their filings, and we, we're a disclosure regulator um, primarily. And we do have a, an enforcement division, which um, in crypto has played a role, certainly, but typically... The way I like to think of us as a regulatory agency, we write, we write rules and then we have a, a function to enforce those rules if people don't comply with them. Got it. That is very clear. So as commissioner, what exactly is your role and can you give us a flavor of your day to day? So days differ quite a bit, but um, we, as I said, we vote on things. So we vote both on rules and we vote um, also on enforcement actions. And so I spend a lot of my time reviewing rulemakings that we're considering and getting feedback from people who are looking at those proposals and saying, here's what we think you should do differently. Here's what we think works. Here's what doesn't work. Um, and, and just meeting with people in general who are, who are regulated by us or, or supposed to be protected by our rules and, and getting feedback from them on how we might do our job better. And then also, I spend a lot of time looking at enforcement actions trying to decide whether the outcome that, that is being recommended by the staff is a good outcome uh, or not. So it's a lot of reading, a lot of meeting with people, and it's, it's been a, a tremendous honor to, to have this opportunity. That's awesome. I've read a lot online that you've shown a lot of support for crypto and you even have the nickname Crypto Mom. So I guess what makes you optimistic about crypto and how did you first get into it? I like the way you phrased the question of what makes me optimistic about crypto, because I, I don't view myself as a crypto industry advocate as much as I, I do think that um, there's real promise in um, you know human ingenuity, right? And, and so what 
what can, as humans look around the world, they try to figure out what problems need to be solved. And they try to set about solving those problems. And I feel like crypto is one area where a lot of that thinking is going on right now. So of course, there's a lot of, because it's a popular topic, there's a lot of fluff and there's fraud. And there are a lot of people who are just trying to get rich quickly. But there are also people who are thinking about how can we use crypto um, to give people more control over their own lives, to enable people to work better together, um, to enable people to get compensated for the work that they do in ways that wouldn't have been possible before. And, and so giving that, uh, th I guess that's the piece of it that really is exciting to me, this, this idea that people can do things in better and more efficiently and in a way that respects the individual and the individual contribution um, more using crypto. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually from the Philippines and I've seen a lot of communities using crypto, especially for gaming. And that's actually how they're able to uh, make a living during the pandemic. Yeah, I've heard stories of that in the Philippines. And, you know, again, while this may not be a sustainable way for people to make income for a long time, it is it is encouraging to see that some people are, are using are using this moment to um, to better themselves and their families. And especially if the currency is not super stable, that's also a huge factor. And I think sometimes we in the United States forget that because we sort of we think through our very U.S. centric lens and we forget that there are people who are living in much more challenging conditions elsewhere in the world. And so some an innovation that may not be immediately obviously useful to us may be extremely useful and in fact life changing and life saving in other parts of the world. And so I hope that we can keep an open mind to how the technology can help other people, even if it doesn't change our lives as dramatically. Yeah, absolutely. So I know you've been commissioner since 2018, and the crypto world has just changed so much since then. How has the outlook or interest in crypto really changed since you joined? When I look back, I think, you know, when I when I came to the SEC, um, I knew a little bit about crypto based on some colleagues I had worked with before, kind of teaching me some of the, the real basics. I knew that it would be something that was on the SEC's radar because already people were coming in asking for approval for Bitcoin exchange traded products. And of course, we'd had the ICO boom in 2017. I didn't realize, though, how much of the SEC's time and attention would be spent thinking about crypto issues. So that's something that in the, in the intervening four years has definitely come to the fore. But I think the thing I'm most excited about is that many more people now are looking at crypto as something that is here to stay. And they're, they're thinking, um, maybe not from exactly the same perspective that I'm thinking about it, but they're thinking about how can we build a regulatory framework that will last um, and make sense for crypto. And so there's much more openness, both at regulators and in, in DC more generally, on the Hill, in Congress, toward thinking about solutions that make sense from a regulatory perspective. So basically, crypto is here to stay. So we need some framework around it. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's a really great segue into the next portion, which is just talking about what's the current crypto regulation landscape like. 
if you could just give a very brief overview, like how exactly is crypto regulated today? If I were a startup founder, what hoops would I need to jump through? And are those kind of still in flux? They're very much still in flux. It's really difficult for someone coming into the crypto space to deal with the regulatory framework because it is uncertain. And in fact, more generally, the United States has a pretty complicated financial regulatory framework. We have regulators at the federal level, like the SEC and the CFTC, which is our co-capital markets regulator. Uh, most countries don't have two agencies doing those things. Um, but we also have a whole group of banking regulators. And then we have state level regulation, which is very important in this space. It's very important. Um, our state securities regulators play a really important role in, in regulating that space. And then there's state banking regulators as well. And so people coming into crypto are trying to figure out who um, has oversight over us. And, and maybe multiple agencies will claim that oversight. Uh, so it can be quite daunting. I think one, one piece that I always remind people of, because I'm at the SEC, is a lot of things that people do have securities laws implications. And that's true in crypto too. And so you have to think about the securities laws. And especially if you're, if you're using crypto, if you're trying to raise money to build a project, um, you know, whether it's crypto or something else, you have to think about whether the securities laws might govern what you're doing. Um, and, and so that's been an area where uh, a lot of there, there's been a lot of talk around, you know, how do the securities laws apply and how should they apply? But frankly, our rules are, and laws are old and, and they've worked quite well for, for, you know, 90 or so years in, in the security space. Um, but there really are things that I think cause, cause me at least to ask, do we need to modernize the rules? Do we need to provide some more flexibility? And actually, one of the things Congress did when they wrote the securities laws was really smart, which is they said to the SEC, you have some freedom to, to craft exemptions from the rules because we know things are going to change over time. So go ahead and use that freedom to write exemptions that that allow us to achieve the objectives of the securities laws, but nevertheless um, give some people flexibility to do things in new ways. So that's something that we could take more advantage of than we do. And then just to answer your, your basic question, you know, banking regulators have asserted some, certainly they've expressed some interest in stable coins, for example, um, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, while it doesn't have direct um, regulatory responsibility over something like Bitcoin. It does regulate the Bitcoin futures markets. And because of that, it has some ability to regulate, uh, to, to pursue fraud in the underlying spot markets. And so there are a lot of different people who have pieces of this. And then a lot of the work on the regulatory side has been done at the state level. Um, the, the state money money transmission laws have been um, have been a big piece of regulation in crypto. Well, that sounds like a lot of different stakeholders <laughs> all at once. How do you ensure that everybody's kind of moving in the right direction? 
Well, I mean, that's one of the advantages and one of the disadvantages of this fractured regulatory structure. An advantage is that some regulators can step out in front and say, hey, we're going to show you what it looks like to be a progressive regulator in this space, a regulator that recognizes that technologies change, our objectives as regulators don't change, but we can work with those new technologies. So you get states like Wyoming saying, we're going to create a regulatory framework um, specifically for crypto. Um, you get states like Florida and Texas, you know, very much rolling out the welcome mats. Um, you get states like Arizona developing um, a fintech sandbox approach. Uh, so, so there's not really coordination in that sense, but we can learn from one another. But I will say that because there's, there's, well, especially as crypto has grown, you see, and, and as, as we talked about before, people are recognizing crypto is here to stay. So you see a little bit more um, interest from regulators saying, wait, I think I might want to assert some jurisdiction over this space because I think it's going to be important. And so there's a little bit of jockeying for position going on. Maybe jockeying instead of coordination right now. <laughs> Whatever works, right? Yeah. Now we do have, I should, I should tell you, Gabby, that we have, we have at the federal level, we've got the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is a group of regulators. Um, we also have the President's Working Group, another group of regulators. And so those groups can coordinate. Um, and then, of course, you have the President who can work on coordination and, and Congress can write legislation and say, hey, we want this agency to have authority or we don't want this agency to have authority. So, so there, there certainly are, you know, we as agencies have to respond to whatever, whatever directives we're getting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was really interesting that you said that you guys are free to essentially make different exemptions for crypto um, because it's something that you need to be flexible about. Can you give me an example of one exemption that you think is really representative of that? Um, well, one example outside the crypto context is we have a, a rule that exchanges have to register with us, um, but we allow exchanges to sort of opt into this other alternate regulatory regime um, for ATSs, um, which are, al are alternative trading systems. And so they're not subject to all the rules of an exchange. They're subject to kind of a different framework. So we can do things like that. In the crypto space, what you've seen the SEC do a, a few times, several times, is we've issued, the staff has issued something called a no action letter, which is a, a statement saying, if you do things in the way, in this, you know, according to these conditions, then we won't recommend to the SEC and enforcement action. Um, and that can be helpful to people. They, they have the parameters within which they can operate. Now, in the crypto space, the no action letters we've released so far have been pretty limited in scope, meaning that it hasn't been very imaginative and creative and saying, you know, we're really willing to let you um, try something really new here. We've really constrained what people can do. But if we were willing to use that authority more broadly, that would be good. We've also, at the commission level, we issued a, 
basically a pilot program for special purpose broker dealers to allow them to deal in digital asset securities. And so that's an example. But at the time that that, that came out, you know, what I said is it's great we're doing this. It's a baby step because it doesn't, it puts so many constraints on, on the special purpose broker dealers in that program that they can't really experiment with the kinds of things they're trying to do which might be to have digital asset securities alongside digital assets that aren't securities alongside potentially traditional securities. So we still have a lot of work to do on opening up that, that exemption to allow more flexibility. Got it. Got it. So I guess switching, switching gears a bit. So I understand that essentially regulation is there to manage a lot of different risks. So what are sort of the main risks that you foresee in crypto and maybe p- examples of potential fraud? Well, I think the biggest risk that I see from the perspective of, of um, investors is, you know, you worry about people being just taken advantage of by fraudsters. And so that's something, it's not really that unusual for crypto. It's, it's the same types of fraud that we see in other parts of the market where, you know, someone will make very grand promises, take people's money and run off with it and not fulfill any of those promises. So that's something that our traditional fraud, anti-fraud laws are, are pretty good at dealing with. Um, I think that the unique aspect of crypto is this idea of dis- disintermediation. That's the unique aspect that's a little challenging for us. What do we do usually when we regulate? We go to the, the company, that the financial company that, that an investor is dealing with, and we say, you know, you better be honest with your, your, your customer. You better, um, you know, treat them uh, take into consideration what their best interests are you have to you have to do those things and if you don't do them then we we can bring an enforcement action against you i mean i'm obviously being very speaking in very broad strokes but so that if you truly remove that company and you're you're dealing with peers dealing with one another or dealing with code on the other side it makes it much more complicated for us so I think we have to think through those issues. And, and then I, I would say another big issue in crypto is just this idea of information asymmetry. So if you don't have a decentralized system, but you have a system that actually does have someone who's, who's um, building the project and knows much more about what she's building than the person to whom she's trying to sell a token, then you want to make sure that the information gets from the builder to the token purchaser. And that's something that securities laws are really used to dealing with, trying to alleviate the information asymmetry, trying to make sure that the person who has the information and is trying to raise the money shares it with people who are buying something, buying the security. Now, I'm not getting into the whole question of whether or not something is a securities offering. I think those are really difficult questions. Um, but we can all agree that it's good for someone who's buying something to have the information she needs to make that purchase decision. No, I think that's such a that's a really interesting way to put it. Like, I feel like if you have a decentralized system, like who are you even going to go after, right? Yeah. Um, yeah so that's. I think the reality is that 
at the end of the day, a lot of us want to have someone that we can go complain to if something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. So there's a subset of people who's going to be fully comfortable working in a decentralized world, taking responsibility for everything, you know, making, engaging with, with code or with peers, in which case there's no one to go and complain to. There are a lot of other people who are going to say, you know what, I want to access the DeFi protocol, but I want to do it through someone who can hold my hand in doing mm. that. And so I suspect this isn't going to be as big a problem as we think it is because so many people are going to want to have that handholder. Um, but I, as a regulator, also think it's really exciting that there are these DeFi opportunities out there for people to, to disintermediate. And, and so we need to make sure that whatever approach we take recognizes the importance of people's freedom to make those decisions to interact that way. And we also need to remember that there's, there's an advantage to um, DeFi or to, to, to truly, a truly DeFi protocol. One is it's, you know, it's transparent. So you know what you're getting Um, and it treats everyone the same, which is not always true with centralized intermediaries. And, you know, you, you can make your decision with eyes wide open about whether you want to participate in that. So if we regulate, we should take into account the fact that there's some unique benefits um, for, from the regulatory perspective of this code-based approach. Sort of the flip side of it as well, right? Yeah. I think you touched on this a little bit in a, in a few minutes ago, but when you're coming up with regulation, how do you sort of balance consumer protection with allowing for innovation and new ideas? Well, I think that's one of the nice things about having a commission. So we all come with slightly different perspectives. And my perspective is, is certainly one that that elevates the importance of, of the individual's right to choose for herself and for her family what's best for her, right? And And says, Sure, we need rules. There are times when we when we need to write rules and, and do things, but we also need to remember that every time you write a rule and you say this is how you have to do something, you're also telling someone and you can't do things another way, which means you're taking a little freedom away from someone. So we have to we have to always have that in the back of our mind. Yes, we need rules, but we also need to know that rules come with costs, including cost of personal freedom. Um, so it's always going to be a balancing act, and we're always going to be thinking about those things. Now, with respect to innovation specifically, I, sir, I had worked at the SEC before I was a commissioner, and I knew that like many regulatory agencies, the SEC doesn't always handle innovation well, right? They, 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 we tend to look to regulation and say, you know what, we'd rather just keep things the same, don't shake things up. Don't bring in new players because we're used to dealing with the players that we deal with. We're used to the way things always are. And so we can kind of slow walk innovation. So what, one of the reasons I wanted to come back as a commissioner was to say, let's push the bounds a little bit more and open the doors to innovation more because innovation means that you're bringing in new competitors, new ways of thinking about addressing problems. And so let's be a little bit more welcoming to innovation. So I'm kind of raising those issues about innovation, individual freedom, 
Um, I do think investor protection is important, and I think it's very important that our agency go after fraud. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, I'm always trying to raise, raise the visibility of those, uh, the other side of the coin. I feel like that's such a hard um, balance to strike, um, especially on the regulation side. So I think one other thing I just wanted to dive deeper on was the safe harbor proposal. So can, I, can you give us a brief description of what it is and why you believe this initiative is necessary? Yeah, so I proposed a safe harbor for token offerings because what I was concerned about is that a project that was trying to launch a network couldn't do a token distribution event in a way that they would know was compliant with the securities laws because there's a lot of uncertainty around when the securities laws apply and how. And I think when you're starting a network, and you, you want to have broad participation in it, you really need to get those tokens out into the hands of lots of people. Different projects have tried different ways of doing that, whether it's an airdrop or selling them, or you know, they're, they're different options. Um, so my, my thought was, I get what the concern is from, from people who looked at the ICO boom and they said this was terrible. A lot of people got ripped off. So we do need some better disclosure. So the safe harbor says you can do a token distribution event, but you've got to make these specific disclosures about the project, about the people behind it, about the token economics, what's your plan of action. Um, and then you've got three years to kind of develop out that network. And then at the end of three years, we can talk about whether it's a security or not. So this, this allows you to achieve the objective of informing the token purchasers about the key, the key data that they need to know. That's backed up with the anti-fraud laws under the securities laws. So you can't, you know, you can't just say whatever you want because you could be subject to an enforcement action then if you did, but you won't be subject to the full panoply of securities laws um, unless after three years, you just haven't succeeded in building it out into a, a functioning decentralized network. Um, and uh, the, the reason um, for doing this, again, is to, to address this uncertainty that's out there and also to recognize that if you were to fully apply the securities laws from the get-go, not only would the, the token purchaser not get the information that she needed to make her decision because our securities laws really don't elicit the kind of information that's relevant in this space, um, but you also would end up weighting down any transaction in, in uh, involving a token. Um, you'd weight it down with, with all of these securities rules, which don't really serve the same kind of function in this space. They wouldn't work in this space. So that's kind of what was behind my um, putting the safe harbor up. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's a good way to sort of balance innovation with being able to regulate people down the line, right? It's kind of like a stack. If you think about it, you have like a bit of time to figure things out. And then yeah, you, you, you have I mean, I, I've never heard that comparison before. But I think it's, it's sort of the same idea, you have a little runway. And then at some point, you know, you either have to fish or cut bait. Did you face any pushback with this proposal? Yeah, I mean, I, it, I haven't managed to get my colleagues to go along with it yet. So still working on that project. You know, I, I get the reluctance, right, to, to create new things, because 
what people say is, look, our securities laws have worked really well for so many years, so why do we need to change anything about it? And my response to that is, the reason the securities laws have worked well for so many years is because we have this ability to make exemptions and adjustments as needed over time. If we don't use that authority that we're given to do that, they're not going to work. And so I think that's kind of the the situation we're in now. I'm saying I want flexibility and other people are saying, no, we think you don't need to have any flexibility in this space. And so I've got to keep trying to persuade people. I saw that you also posted a lot of it on GitHub for feedback from the general population. I guess, like, how did you think of that? And do you think that this is an effective way to iterate on proposals? Yeah, I mean, I thought of it because I know that a lot of people in this space use GitHub. And I thought, well, I want to, I want people to be able to work on it and respond to it in a place they're comfortable doing that. And, and part of my thinking too, is that I'm a securities regulator. I know certain pieces of, of what is going on out there, but I certainly don't have subject matter expertise on crypto. I'm not I'm not deep into it. And I want to draw on the knowledge of people who actually are working on this stuff day to day and who would be the ones who would either use the safe harbor as you know, a, a project launching a network or as someone purchasing the tokens. I want to hear from those people and I want those people to get their hands in the dirt, so to speak, of writing, you know, what would you change about it? What do you think works? What doesn't work? And so I've gotten some good feedback. I had some people really try to iterate on it um, within GitHub in ways that I think are useful. Um, and so I would love to see us as regulators doing more of this kind of open sourcing a little bit and, and, and getting the community involved in writing the rules so that they can be the best and most effective rules at the end of the day. Um, I, it's it, The knowledge doesn't all reside here in Washington. I was just on a call with someone about a rule that we're working on. And, and they were able to tell me some things about how that rule would work in practice that I wouldn't have thought of because I don't have their experience. And so um, the, the best thing we can do is to have those conversations as publicly as possible. And that's something that GitHub allows you to do, right? People can make changes and other people can respond to those changes. And so I'd love to see a, a, a more a more open kind of regulatory dialogue like that. Just switching gears one more time in terms of your outlook on crypto regulation. For you, what is really the ideal state of regulation and what changes do we need to make to get there? Well, I think what I'm looking for right now is just some clarity. I get asked so often, just please tell us what the rules are so we can comply with them. So I think one one thing that would be great is just to provide some more clear markers. And I think we have the capacity to do that at the SEC. We have people who know the technology well and who can think about, you know, here are some things at least people ought to be thinking about, areas where the securities laws might be implicated. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I would like to see us, again, to, 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 to go back to what I was saying before, I would like to see us recognizing um, the importance of individuals ability to make decisions for themselves, to choose how to spend their money. Um, those are kind of concepts that I would like to be more baked in. And so whatever crypto regulatory regime we end up with at the end of the day, I hope it does recognize that people are finding value in, in, in using crypto. And so let's not prevent them from using it. You know, as long as they're not harming other people, 
that. So I would like that love of freedom to be infused through whatever, whatever crypto regulations we end up with. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like the whole idea of crypto is very much about like freedom, making your own choices. Of course, with that comes responsibility, right? So then, you know, when people when people lose money, they often want to come running uh, to get the regulator to get it back for them. And it doesn't always work. So eyes wide open, people need to go in and they need to use their minds as they're thinking about what they want to invest their hard earned money in. So one last question that we ask basically every one of our guests is, do you have any advice for your younger self? Well, it's an exciting time of life. You're, you know, the whole world is your oyster. And I think the best advice I could give to my younger self would have been ask more questions. There were so many times when I was a, a young lawyer and there were questions I should have asked, but I was too scared to ask them. It, it's better to look stupid for asking a question than to not ask the question and realize that you were totally off base. And by asking questions, you learn, right? It, every person you encounter has something to teach you, has some unique experience, knowledge, um, talent that you can learn from. And so take advantage of that. I think we've, we've been isolated from one another for so long that we sometimes forget just how um, precious each each person is and, and, and unique and has a unique gift to give. So ask questions, be curious, and you'll learn from those people. Well, thank you so much, Commissioner First. This was a really interesting conversation. Well, Gabby, thank you for, for doing it. This has been a lot of fun. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. So if you're still with us, thanks for listening. We're hoping to put out more episodes like this every week, so stay tuned. As promised, here's our pitch for the MIT FinTech Conference, a student-run event held on February the 25th at the Marriott Hotel in Cambridge. We have some truly exciting speakers lined up for this year, and last year's attendees included Vlad Tenev from Robinhood, Ajay Banga from MasterCard, Sheila Warren, head of blockchain from the World Economic Forum, in addition to our own prominent fintech personalities at MIT, such as Neha Narula from the Decentralized Currency Initiative at MIT Media Lab. This year, we will hold a conference in person and talk remotely, and it will include a Shark Tank-style startup pitch competition, a raffle for a collection of NFTs crafted and minted by MIT students, and many more initiatives. You can already head to mitfintech.com to get your early bird tickets with discounts for students. If you're interested in partnering with our conference, please get in touch through mitfintech at mit.edu.